Hello? Oh, there we go. Is that better? Can you hear me online? Okay. Anyways, like I was saying, we do not command the angels. The angels answer to God and Jesus. Okay? We, they do not answer to us. We do not command the angels. I do want to take a look at a, a specific passage because this is, this is a really interesting passage. It's Psalm 91, and I want to read it, and then I want to look at it real fast. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night or the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked, because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Okay, this is a very interesting passage. Have you ever thought about the fact, why is it that when Jesus, okay, when Jesus starts casting out demons, why is it that that was something to show of his messianic character? Because nothing was prophesied that he would cast out demons when he came as the Messiah. The Jewish people believed that David and Solomon were given power by God to cast out demons. Y'all hear me? Okay. They believed that David and Solomon were given special power from God, right? They were God's loved kings. And so people believed, which is traced back through history, that David and Solomon were given special ability from God to cast out demons out of people. And it would make sense if Jesus is from the line of David, that he would then carry on some of the same traits. So Psalm 91 was actually written, all right? It is a special psalm talking about protection from demonic entities, okay? Satan proves this himself when Satan quotes it at Jesus while he is tempting him in Matthew 4, 5 through 7. All right, that's kind of funny, right? That the devil would quote it, and this psalm is specifically protection from demonic entities, okay? Psalm 91, 3 through 6 and verse 13 are describing demonic entities, so let's look at it. 3 through 6, surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. Okay, the perilous pestilence, if you actually look in the Hebrew, this is a name of a demon. The name is attributed to the word pestilence. Okay, but this was a Hebrew word for the name. I can't pronounce it, so I'm not even going to try right now. Okay, this word is attributed to the English and Greek words of pestilence. All right, so it was a specific entity. And he shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Okay, that's protection, right? Your refuge is in him. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, also another demonic entity, nor of the arrow that flies by day. Okay, so the arrow that flies by day, there's a specific God of the Amorites that was 
that was seen depicted as an archer. Okay, a demonic entity that was depicted as an archer. The arrow that flies by day is describing this entity. All right, so in how our English transfers this over, these are actually speaking about demonic entities that the Jewish people would have clearly known about if they were reading Psalms 91. But a lot of the translation gets messed up when it gets to English and the way we see it from our perspective. All right, so I want y'all to go back. It's on there, but I want y'all to go back and study that. Psalm, don't take my word for it. Go back and study Psalm 91 in the perspective of the ancient Israelites. Verse 13. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Okay, this isn't literally saying, this psalm isn't saying that you're going to go and beat up young lions and you're going to go around stamping on serpents' heads. These are also demonic entities. It says you shall trample underfoot. Where else do we see this verbiage of trampling a serpent under our foot? Right, it's Jesus, Right. Do we see that? Do we see that connection there? Guys, it's in the details that we have to see these things. I'm not just pulling out. I'm telling you, research this. So this is a specific psalm speaking about, and then what? The angels come to minister to the people. All right, verses 10 through 12. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. So what is that showing us? There's protection, right? When we find ourselves in the protection of the Almighty, right? The Most High, there's protection and there's protection from these demonic entities that want us, right? That want our souls, that want our health, right? Like we see Job attacked. They want to do the same thing to believers, right? They want to come after us. They want to take what we have. And that's why that psalm is so powerful, because it's not just saying God will protect you from the physical things, right? He's saying he will also protect you from the spiritual things. So it's not just protection from the physical we experience, but also in the spiritual we can't see. So that psalm is even more important when we look at it that way, because what does it say? It's covering us all the way around in the physical and the spiritual. It's covering us all bases and that's why it's so important. And like it says, the last bullet, and the angels are there protect, to protect us, right? He gives charge of his angels, so he commands his angels, right, to protect his people. He commands them to protect his people. And I, I think that's pretty amazing. And that psalm all the way around just shows us the love of God in a whole new way, that he doesn't just care about the physical and how you are here. He cares about everything, the spiritual, all the way around. All right, angels are extremely active in the New Testament scriptures. We see them all throughout the scriptures, okay? They always take the form of man when they show themselves to humans, right? And a lot of the times they're terrifying to human beings because they've been in the presence of God. Me and Pastor Charlie were talking about this, right? They've been in the presence of God. They're, full, they're covered in the glory of God for being in his throne room. And a lot of the times it's terrifying for people. And I want to look at Hebrews 13, 2, and then Luke 1, 11 through 12. Hebrews 13, 2 says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. So what does that tell us? Angels can show themselves as people, right? They can show themselves as people. Why else would Scripture say, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Right? They can show themselves a way they want to be seen. And then, then there's the opposite effect of Luke 1, 11 through 12. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, 
he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Okay, so we see two different examples here. Angels can show themselves and you won't even know they're an angel, but then the vice versa when they show themselves, they can be terrifying, right? Full of glory. If, if I saw a figure of a man appear before me and he was glowing, looked like fire, I'd probably be pretty afraid too, right? You would know that is, that is not a normal human being. They may have the physical shape of a human being, but when they show up full of glory looking like the shining sun, I think, you, I think you'll get the hint that that's not a human being, right? So they show themselves in different ways. They're known as God's secret agents. Billy Graham wrote a book about angels, and he called it God's secret agents. And I thought that was a pretty cool concept because it's true. They move amongst us, and we have no idea they're amongst us working in the will and way of God. And they're also known as God's soldiers on the ground because they are the divine beings that come down to man. And they help man, and they fight on the behalf of man, and they protect man, and they provide for man. They form the angel army, countless numbers of heavenly soldiers Okay, in uh, 2 Kings 6.17, it's such a cool example. But the young man that's with Elisha, he says, Elisha, we're surrounded, we're outnumbered. And this, this is what Elisha prays, 2 Kings 6.17. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Could you imagine if the Lord, I, I said this last week, could you imagine if the Lord just opened our eyes for a split second to let us see what was happening outside of these walls or even within these walls? We don't know, right? Could you imagine that view, right? Countless angels, a huge army, and the fire, they're usually depicted in the fire, and that's usually the righteousness or judgment of God upon them is the fire, right? We see the fire at the altar in Revelation. All right, and here we go. There are not multiple types of angels. Angels are a specific type of divine being. We dealt with the normal viewpoint of angels. Well, here we are at archangels, okay? Archangel stands for chief of angels. An archangel is not a different type of angel. It is a rank. It's a rank. It's chief of angels. That's where the arch comes from. It means chief, all right? An angel who is in charge of other angels and given specific authority from God. The only named archangel in Scripture is Michael, but many classify Gabriel as an archangel since he is referred throughout Scripture. He's the most referred to angel. While a lot of many people believe that Michael, the archangel, is the most important, Gabriel's actually the most referred to by name angel in Scripture. Okay? That's what people believe about that. And then just as there are demonic entities over specific regions, there are angels who protect the people of God. We see that there are angels who protect the people of God. So Daniel 10.13 says, this is Gabriel speaking to Daniel, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia, we talked about this one a little bit, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Well, what does this lead me to believe? It says one of the chief princes, so there must be other archangels. It says one of them, right? So there must be other, but apparently God only saw it fit for us to know about one, right? Because Scripture does talk about the danger of angel worship, and that did happen amongst a lot of the early Christians. They fell into angel worship. That's why Paul and Peter both write about not worshiping angels, 
right? Because they show themselves as mighty men. So that shows us there are other archangels besides Michael. But in this specific scenario, Michael came to relieve Gabriel from the fight so he could go and minister to Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, 1. At that time, Michael, so this is talking about the end of time. This is going in hand in hand with the book of Revelation. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. So what does that show us? Michael watches over the people of Israel. And I don't believe that's changed. How else could the, how else could the country of Israel withstand all that they have withstood for all these years if they did not have some type of some type of being sent by God to protect them. With all, the, with all they have fought from terrorism, from all the other countries surrounding them, there's only one way they could have lasted to this day, and that is protection from God himself, right? So I believe Michael the archangel still watches over the people of Israel to this day. I don't believe that's changed. And then we see that Michael himself fights Satan. If we look at Revelation 12, 7 through 9, I wrote that article about the first couple of verses, but this is a different story, right? If you read the article, you'll see where I'm coming from. And it says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil, and Satan, who delivers the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So what does that say about Michael? That's a tough angel. That he and his group of angels, right? Obviously, if an angel is spending all his time in the presence of God when he's not out on the field doing battle, that's a powerful angel. Given power directly from God. God, y'all, we give, we give Satan too much power sometimes. In fact, that God doesn't even have to deal with him. He allows his angels to beat up Satan. Like, we understand that, right? While Satan is extremely cunning and smart, we don't have to fear him. We are given authority over Satan, over Lucifer. We are given authority through the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, but that just shows us that Michael, an angel, God doesn't even waste his time, nor does Jesus in combat with the devil. He lets his angels do it. Right? Well, what is that? We always mess with people. You know, come handle my light work. That's basically what God said to Michael is, hey, man, he's, he's at it again. Come handle my light work. You know, I don't have to spend my time on this. So archangels are very, very powerful, very strong. All right, so what does this mean to us? God has assigned mighty warrior angels to protect his people. That is you. You are his people. Right? We talked about cosmic geography with the demonic entities. Well, God put special hedges of protection over his church, over his people. So right now, at this moment, there are angels watching over us. And I genuinely believe there are churches assigned, uh, sorry, there are angels assigned to churches. We see that in the book of Revelation, right? The seven churches who received the seven letters, there were seven angels assigned to the seven churches. So if you are a true Bible-believing church, there's an angel assigned to your church to protect your people, to watch over your people. Right? And I, I think that's amazing. I think that's amazing that to this day, God protects his people by sending angels to watch over his people. All right, and now we're going to get into this, all right? There are three types of divine beings we see in Scripture. And stay with me. We have Scripture reference, and you can read through it and come up with this opinion for yourself. There are three types of divine beings we see in Scripture attributed to heaven. The first ones are angels, okay? And we saw that angels are a specific type of divine being. Their name means something different, right? It means messenger. They are different. They show themselves, right, as in the form of man. That's, that's how they look to the human eye. All right, cherubim are different, all right? Cherub, cherubim is the plural. 
All right, let's look at Genesis 3, 22 through 24. Where is the first example we see of a cherub? Well, let's find out. Genesis 3, 22 through, 20, through 24. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. Okay, this is the fall in the garden, Adam and Eve, okay? So when God says like one of us, we dealt with this last week, right? He's speaking to the divine beings around him, like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and what did he place there? And he placed cherubim at the east of the garden, sorry, at, at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life, right? That's our first example of a cherubim. They're different, right? You can obviously see that they're different from the first example. But now I want to also look at Ezekiel 1. I'm pretty sure it says 4 through 24, but I just want to look at Ezekiel 1, 4 through 9 real quick. Then I looked and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself and brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures and this was, was their appearance. They had likeness of a man. Each one had four faces and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. The hands of a man were under their wings on their four sides. And each, each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. Can we see from that description that that is very different than the angels that show themselves to man throughout Scripture? This is a very different description of what these beings look like, okay? And Ezekiel 10, the entire chapter deals with it, but Ezekiel 10 is where it specifically says these are cherubim, okay? You can go read Ezekiel 10 and compare it to Ezekiel 1. The Ezekiel 1 description is then expounded upon in Ezekiel 10, and these are cherubim. That's where he specifically says the cherubim. Okay, and that's, that's where we see that connection. And in Ezekiel 28, 12 through 5, we see that Lucifer himself was a cherub. It says it specifically. We see that, and we talked about that last week, that Lucifer was a cherub. Okay, he was a specific type of divine being, and what were his responsibilities? The cherubim are placed at, at the boundary between the sacred and the profane to protect the holy from contamination. Now, isn't that odd that Satan, the one who contaminates everything, used to keep the holy from being contaminated? Why do you think he's so good at it? Did, did, did y'all hear that? Why is Lucifer so good at contaminating everything? Because he used to be one of the divine beings in charge of keeping the holy holy. He guarded the sacred spaces that God assigned him to. So if, you're, if your whole life mission and you were made to guard sacred places and to keep specific places holy, you think then he would know how every single way to contaminate something. Amen? So we see that in his character of what he was made to do was to guard specific places and to keep them holy. But now he does the opposite and everything he touches becomes contaminated. And we see that cherub, cherubim are never sent to deliver messages. What do angels do? What does their name literally mean? Messenger. 
cherubim never deliver messages to human beings. Do, do we see that difference there? They never do. You won't see it in the scripture. All right, they're, they're literally the heavenly throne guardians. All right, me and Pastor Charlie were talking about uh, Jesse Duplantis' vision where he saw these beings coming in and out of the throne room of God. And they are literally the heavenly throne guardians who protect sacred spaces. Cherubim, there are 60 references to cherubim in the scriptures. If, if you remember the Exodus story, the Ark of the Covenant actually has cherubim over it. Why, are they, why is that? Because the cherubim are guarding the sacred, holy covenant, right? The Ark of the Covenant. And that, and if you just look up cherubim, you will literally see 60 references in Scripture. So those are the cherubim. We see, we see their description in Scripture, and we also see what they were made for. All right? And now we're moving on to the seraphim. There's only one passage where seraphim are specifically named in the Bible. Only one. And we're going to look at it. All right? So the seraphim, the singular is seraph, the plural is seraphim. All right? Isaiah 6 1 through 7. Let's look at Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Y'all, that's a pretty amazing vision. You see God and his, the robe. His robe flows through the temple showing his majesty. Right? That's amazing. Above it stood what? Seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. Can we already see the difference in that description as well? Angels show themselves in the form of men. Cherubim have four wings and four faces, and the seraphim have six wings. Two covering their faces, two covering their feet, and two they used to fly. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Wow, that's a powerful angel. He cries out, and what, what does it say? It says, and the posts of the doors were shaken by his voice. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king." the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Okay. These angels purify things so they can come into the presence of God. They are God's personal attendants. The only example we see them in Scripture, what are they doing? They're glorifying God, right? They're, they're attending to everyone of, well, God doesn't have needs, but you know what I mean? Everything God desires, they're attending to him constantly in his throne room. In, their, in his throne room. They worship God continually. They fly above God's throne, right? They're in his presence constantly singing his praises, bringing glory to God, making sure that everything that comes is purified, Okay. These are specifically gods. These seraphim are never sent to people to deliver messages. So what does that mean? They are not angels. They're never sent to people to deliver messages. They do not deal directly with the issues on earth. The power of God is shown through these mighty beings attending to him day and night singing his praises. How does that show God's mighty? Because this angel is so powerful. When he sings, the whole temple shakes. Can you imagine that? When he opens his mouth and speaks, the whole temple shakes. And these angels wait on God hand and foot, day and night, 24-7, singing the praises of God. 
these mighty angels. Specifically, not angels, sorry, these mighty seraphim. They worship him in his throne room day and night. All right? So they were made for a specific purpose. Do we see that? Each one of these divine beings were made for a specific purpose. The angels made, right, to do God's work on heaven and earth, the cherubim to protect the holy places of God, to defend them, and the seraphim to minister to God day and night because he is worthy of all the praise, glory, and honor. Amen? So while we come here on Sundays and some Wednesdays and these nights and worship, these beings are constantly Never-ending, never-ceasing, worshiping God all the time is what they were created for. And I'll say it, but I'm going to say it again because this is a misconception. When we don't read the scripture, we just take this. Cherubim and seraphim are never called angels in scripture. Never. Not one time will you see them referred to as angels. Do, Do the research. They are called by their names or they are called creatures and are always seen in visions and prophecies around the throne of God. No man has seen them on the earth. They haven't seen them. The only time people ever see them is in prophecies and visions given by God. The only time. That's the only time we see them. And they're always around the throne of God, or in the one example in Genesis, protecting the Garden of Eden, right? Where God walked on the earth with man, the sacred places of God. That's where we see the cherubim and the seraphim are around the throne of God day and night. And we act as if humans and divine beings are the same, but we're not. We understand that, right? Human beings and divine beings, we are not the same. We don't even, we don't share the same type of traits. We were made differently for two different realms. Just because there's only one type of human being does not mean there's only one type of divine being. And I feel like we attribute our humanity to divine beings all the time. And we look at angels as we would look at a man, but no, we're not the same. So just because there's one type of human being, right, there's only one form of humankind, just two different sexes, right, that does not mean there's only one form of divine being in the heavens. That's not even what Scripture tells us. That's what we attribute to them, but that's not who they are. Humans are physical beings, while divine beings are spirit beings. So just because the way they're perceived doesn't mean that's what they are. Does that make sense? They're shown a certain way in visions, and they're shown a certain way in, prophe- in prophecies, but that is us trying to perceive them to the best of our humanly abilities, right? When we see God face to face, then we will understand in full what we now understand in part, right? So we have to do our best now to understand what is Scripture telling us about these beings. And now I want to deal with the four living creatures, and, and the majority of people are torn of this. These are the four living creatures found in Revelation 4, 6 through 9, but also you see all the other references from Revelation. Okay, while we do not know for sure whether these are different beings than the cherubim or seraphim or the angels, we can see the similarities very clearly from the entirety of chapter 1 of Ezekiel and also Isaiah 6, 2. Okay, we're going to read Revelation 4, 6 through 9. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were what? Four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, and the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest uh, day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor, thanks to him whoever sit, who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. 
Okay, so Ezekiel 1.5 also has this same verbiage in it, okay? Also from within, here we go, we see uh, Ezekiel 1.5. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. Well, we just saw that in Revelation 4, didn't we, when we just read 6-9. through nine. It was the same description, right? The likeness of four living creatures. While Ezekiel expands on these beings in Ezekiel 10 as cherubim, okay? We don't know if these are seraphim or cherubim, all right? But the description could point to one. I genuinely believe these are cherubim described in Revelation 4 just because Ezekiel 1.5 has the same verbiage, okay? And we have to match verbiage with verbiage, okay? So awesome from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. Well, let's see. What does Revelation say again? And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, okay? So it's that same verbiage, all right? Just a little bit different, but we also have to remember, right? The book of Revelation has 569 references to the Old Testament. And so Ezekiel was where? In the Old Testament, right? So this could be a parallel. Now, we don't know for sure. No scholar claims that they know for sure. These could be different beings, but it's more likely they're either the cherubim or the seraphim. They share traits of both. Okay, I don't think we have to get hung up on that fact. I believe they are one or the other. What is important that we know this, that these beings have specific roles, right, just as we have specific roles, and they interact in different ways, right? We have to know what is pertaining directly towards us, right, that God is sending for our protection, and what has God created for him, right? God created the cherubim to protect his holy places and created the seraphim to worship him day and night. That doesn't have anything to do with us specifically, Do we see that? Those are pertaining to God. Why? Because God deserves the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Right? So we as humans cannot be so conceited that we think every divine being was created to protect us. We are blessed that God even created one type of divine being to watch over his people. Amen? But when we study these things, we see greater the glory of God. That, guys, he has been so powerful, we can't even comprehend them. And what do they do? They worship him day and night. And we couldn't even fathom that type of power that they have. But it shows to the mightiness of God that these beings just worship him 24-7, right? I think that's amazing. I don't know about you guys, but that he would look on mere humans and even warn us when he has creatures like that that are full of power. All right, another important thing about heaven. All divine beings in heaven Worship at the throne of God, singing his praises, all right? Singing praises to God and Jesus. All divine beings in the heavens worship God, all right? They worship him and the lamb. We see that in Revelation 4, all right? Revelation 4 is called the theophany, which means the revelation of God, okay? And so Revelation 4, if you go and read it, I'm sure many of you have read Revelation 4, And it talks about the throne room of God, right? And it's giving these metaphorical and figurative uh, examples of what does the throne room look like, right? Because we dealt with this last week. Prophets do their best to describe what they're seeing, right? Could you imagine being taken into heaven and trying to describe to people what that looked like? I could assume that would be an insurmountable task to fully and accurately describe that. So, right, so we see the theophany, the revelation of God in his throne room in Revelation 4. And what do we see? We see the angels and the cherubim and the seraphim and the human beings, right, the elders, the souls of the righteous, worshiping God. Right, so what is important about that? Everything that God made that is in pledge to him worships him. Right, they worship him in the throne room because God deserves all the glory, all the power, and all the honor. 
We have to understand that God created all things to what? To worship him. And that's what it's all about. That's why he created everything, because he deserves the honor and the glory. And we have to understand as humans, if beings like that submit themselves to God fully, we also should submit ourselves to God fully. And there is a specific angel I want to talk about from the Old Testament, okay? A special angel in Scripture, the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus in his glorified form. Let's look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. What does that say? The worlds, heaven and earth, right? He made the worlds, the spiritual and the physical. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the what? The angels. As he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Well, why, why, this, why this specification that Jesus is higher than the angels? Because Jesus in the Old Testament was known as the angel of the Lord. Shown in his glorified form, that's what he was described at. Let's look at Colossians 1, 15 through 17. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, right? We're dealing with the unseen realm, the things that are visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. We see that, right? He is above. What does it say? The thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Y'all, we're going to deal with these four when we talk about the opposite side, right? The, the kingdom of darkness, because uh, Paul uses the same verbiage in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. We're going to deal with what these hierarchies are. But what is that showing? Jesus is above the powers in the heavens, right? Jesus is the one who was above. He created them. God and Jesus created all of them, right? And they were made for him. He is higher than the angels. The first time the angel of the Lord shows up is in Genesis 16, 6 through 16. And guys, I try to put these in chronological order, but if you look up, you go study this, the angel of the Lord. If you look it up, I think there's 120 references in the Old Testament to the angel of the Lord. And we're going to look at the verbiage and differences. Uh, let's look at Exodus 3, 2 through 6. And let's look at this verbiage here. Exodus 3, 2 through 6. And the what? And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. This is Moses from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, wait, wait, wait. Did, didn't that say the angel of the Lord? was the burning bush, but then it said God was the burning bush. Why? God and Jesus are what? The same person. 
So why else would it say the angel of the, do we see that? Do we see that connection there? Why else would it have said, and so let's look at it again, verse two, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. Do we see that? The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. We see that, right? And so in verse four, what does it say? So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Do do we see that connection? It's the same person, right? The angel of the Lord and God are the same person. So what does that mean? That's Jesus, right? Before he came down in in the form of a baby to live his life on this earth, he walked amongst the people as the angel of the Lord. Here, let's look at another example. Let's look at another one. Let's look at, let's look at Judges, let's go 6, 11 through 13. Sorry, I'm being selective because there's a lot of passages. We're not going to look at all of them. Judges 6. Here we go. 11 through 13. Now the angel of the Lord, who? The angel of the Lord. What is that? Capital A, angel. That's the only one you'll see. Came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizurite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the rime press in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Do we see that? The angel of the Lord appeared to him. All right, it's a specific person. Let's look at 1 Kings 19, 4 through 8. 1 Kings 19, Four through eight. All right, this this is speaking of Elijah when he's being chastened by Jezebel and her people, right? She wants to put him to death. But he himself went a day's journey, speaking of Elijah, into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's, right? Y'all, he has like the whole kingdom after him trying to kill him. Then, Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him. And said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate, and he went in the strength of that day, of that food, 40 days and 40 nights, as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. All right, so we see the angel of the Lord, what? Jesus was helping who? Elijah. Y'all are making a big deal out of this because this is going to play a part. So who, who has seen him so far? These the two main characters, Moses and Elijah. Why is that important? Well, huh, I don't know. Let's see. Let, let, let's go to our next slide. All right. So first off, look, in your own private time where it says compare, compare the, compare the verbiage where, of these scriptures to the other because normal angels of the Lord are referred to always and angel of the Lord while the angel of the Lord is always referred to as such. There's always a distinction in the two ones. But let's look why Moses and Elijah are so important to this. When Jesus was transfigurated in front of the disciples, they witnessed what he looked like in the form he took in the Old Testament. Okay, look at this. Elijah and who? Moses show up on the mountain. Do they not? They knew Jesus by his form in the Old Testament. Do we see that? Does that make sense why Jesus is transfigured in front of them? Because they already knew what he looked like. 
They saw him as the angel of the Lord. Right? That, that's what, that was his description in the Old Testament was the angel of the Lord. And if you go back and read those references, please do. It's going to show his description. You know what the description is? The same one from Revelation when he shows himself in his full glorified form. It can only be Jesus. No other angel is described this way. No other angel is given that type of authority. Okay? So that's Jesus. That's why that's so important. You see the two scripture references of where um, Exodus 23 is where Jesus goes before them to fight on their behalf, the people of Israel. And the first Kings 19, 4 through 8, we just read, which was Elijah. The, the scriptures up top is the transfiguration story. But you guys have heard that and go back and study that if you want to. So Jesus did not just appear on the earth, okay, for the first time in the form of a baby. Y'all, Jesus didn't just show up out of nowhere. He didn't just, boop, here he is, here's Jesus. Jesus had been on the earth. He showed himself, okay, in the Old Testament, he showed himself as a mighty warrior and commander of the angel army before he took the form of a man. Let's look at Joshua 5, 13 through 15. Joshua 5, 13 through 15. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked and behold, a man, what is that? That's capital M, stood opposite him with his, that's capital H. Who else would that be talking about? His sword drawn in, again, capital H, his hand. And Joshua went to him, capital H, and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, okay, pause. Anytime you see a man try to worship an angel, what does the angel say? Don't worry, don't worship me. He says, don't worship me. Only worship God. Only God is worthy. And what, what happens when he worshiped this angel? He didn't tell him no. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does, what does, he, what does he call him? My Lord. Say to his servant. Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal, take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. Where is the only place that's holy? Where God is. And Joshua did so. Do we see those connections? Do we see that Jesus, the angel of the Lord, showed himself specifically as a mighty warrior and the commander of the angel army? I think that's amazing, right? And where, where, where do we see the angel of the Lord disappear? The New Testament. We still see the angels referenced. We still see the cherubim referenced. And the seraphim, without it saying their proper name, are referenced. But the angel of the Lord is never referenced again. Why would he disappear if he didn't come in the form of man? to die for our sins, and to be risen again as a glorified Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's, that's where we see it stop. And that is Jesus Christ. So what, what does that tell us about Jesus? He ain't some meek, scared, little, petite, wussy man. He's not. He never was. And sometimes, you know, we, we think of Jesus as, you know, this meek and just go-with-the-flow type guy. Before he came down as man, he was the mighty warrior. Do y'all know the story of the 185,000 soldiers that were killed in their sleep? Guess who did that? The angel of the Lord. Jesus, the mighty warrior on behalf of his people. That wasn't some random angel. Go back and read the story. The 185,000 soldiers. Who does it say did it? The angel, capital A, of the Lord. Jesus fights on our behalf. He did it then and he does it today. Why do I keep talking about history? 
because that's the same Jesus. The glorified Jesus, once again, is a mighty warrior and the commander of the angel armies. That's why when Jesus said in Scripture, do you not think if I wanted to, I could call 12 legions of angels to come to me right now? He says that to his disciples. When they're, oh, Jesus, this and that, this and that. And he looks at them. He says, do you not know right now I could call down 12 legions of my angels? Thousands upon thousands of angels, Jesus said he could call right now. Why? Because he's the commander of the angel armies. How amazing is that, that we see that in Scripture, but that's not taught upon more about Jesus. So why is all of this important? Why? Because while you have a battle raging all around you every single day, you have an army of countless angelic beings commanded by Jesus Christ fighting on your behalf. That's why this is important. Because when we are talking about spiritual warfare, when we are talking about these things, we must know we are not alone. Right? We have these beings, Jesus Christ himself commanding them to protect us, to watch over us, to guide us, right? To give us information, to be there for us, to minister to us. But we have to see these things in the right light and understand them so we know how to interact with them. All right, and next week I want Auntie and uh, Pastor Charlie to share you their, their stories that they believe they've had experience with angels. And we're going to talk about that next week before we get into the opposite realm of the kingdom of darkness. And after that, we're going to talk about the authority of Jesus. And we're going to track that through scriptures and the authority that he specifically gave to his disciples. Okay? But it's important we know these things, right? Because if we want to fight spiritual warfare, we have to know both sides. We have to know who is on our team, right? Who do we trust? Who do we call out to in battle? So maybe next time you're struggling, maybe you call out to Jesus, the commander of the angel armies. And you ask for specific protection in your situation or specific protection for a family member or a friend that God would send his angels to watch over them and protect them. Amen? Amen. All right, I'm going to pray and then we'll, we will be dismissed for the night. Lord God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your holy scriptures, Lord God, that we can dig deeper, that we can go deeper, that we don't just have to take what people say at face value, but that our teachers give us surplus amounts of scripture reference to look it up for ourselves. So Lord God, I pray that you would help us to retain this information, to really dig deeper in your word, to understand the unseen realm, because Jesus Christ, you created the visible and the invisible realms. All things flow through you and all things are connected to you. You are a supernatural Messiah, a supernatural God. So Lord Jesus, you have made us to be supernatural beings supernatural humans through your Holy Spirit. So Lord God, I pray you would open our eyes and open our ears to the things that are being taught because they are guided by you. In your name I pray. Amen. And you guys have a fantastic week.